You're listening to Innovate Strathclyde, the University of Strathclyde's podcast on innovation and technology. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Innovate Strathclyde, hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, and me, Chris White. Chris, it's great to be hosting another of these podcasts with you, as we've already had some fascinating and insightful discussions around energy, the IPCC report, extreme weather, climate, adaptation and resilience. And I think today I'm particularly struck that our conversation will expand on those because we're going to be looking at equitable transitions and how we need a more holistic approach to making the changes that we all need as a society to tackle the climate emergency and specifically perhaps focusing on the implications of climate change and innovation and sustainability. So perhaps before we introduce our two expert guests who are very kindly joining us, maybe you could kick off with a little bit of a description about what we mean by sustainable development. It's, I think, one of those terms that I think has been with us now for, for quite, a, quite a while. I think it's open to interpretation from a lot of people. And our guests in a minute might well co- correct me as, as I say this, but I think sustainable development is, is the idea of us as a society, so humans as a society, living within our own needs and means. And then our actions that follow on from that are not affecting, so our current actions are not affecting our future generations. So it's a bit of, I, I think, and so we'll hear what our guests have to say, but it's a forward-looking uh, concept, and there's lots of other concepts and goals and targets within there, which we'll start to unpack a little bit as we go through in, in this episode. And I think ultimately, sustainable development is about us as a, as a society and our future generations living within our means and our needs. And that ties in with various targets and goals. I'm sure we'll unpack those as we go through. Um, but that's, a, as, as a concept, our starting point for today. I love that description of living within our means, because that's really what we're talking about underpins so much of the conversations we have about climate change and sustainability, isn't it? It's about not overdoing anything, not overtaking from the planet, not overusing resources, not over mining, not anything. It's actually that the idea of, you know, there is a there is a finite amount and we have to live within that finite amount that we're given of whatever resources it is. And I just think that's a that's a really fabulous way to frame it. I, I think that's right. And if we think about what one of the overarching themes of this whole podcast series is about, of course, it's climate change. And climate change as we uh, are you know, starting to feel the effects of, is driven by us. What we have done to the atmosphere, the pollution that we put into the atmosphere, and how that is then in turn affecting us. So the idea of sustainable development, it, you can see where the disconnect is because we have not lived within our means. We have been over-utilizing our resources. We've been over-polluting and we're starting to feel the effects of that. So the idea or the concept behind sustainable development, of course, is effectively to try and to bring us more in line with where we should have been in the past or very much, of course, where we need to be in the, in the future. Yeah. And so many models of uh, operation, whether it's business or commerce or even perhaps, you know, within education, dare I say it, those, they're not sustainable, you know, the, the endless pursuit of growth and things. So, so there's, a huge, there's a huge series of, of, of conversations that fall out of this, this one term sustainable development, but it's probably time to introduce our guests. And we're absolutely delighted to be joined by Tracy Morse, who's head of the Strathclyde Centre for Sustainable Development at the University of Strathclyde. Tracy, hello. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Amanda and Chris. Thanks very much for inviting me. And our second guest today is Bernadette Snow, who's Deputy Director of the One Ocean Hub, which I have to say is a very cool title, Bernie. Thank you so much for being with us. And and maybe we could ask you to tell listeners what the One Ocean Hub is and does. 
Thank you, Amanda and Chris and Tracy. I'm looking forward to our discussions today. So looking at topic of sustainability and climate. And so the One Ocean Hub is a UKRI GCRF funded project that is uh, housed within the University of Strathclyde. And I happen to be the deputy director of it, but we are a team of a variety of countries, different partners, all working towards a common goal or a common problem and addressing it. We also view the ocean as one ocean. The interconnection is really important. And when we're talking about climate change and we make statements about where are polluting, it's who is polluting and how it is connecting to other nations who may not be polluting or may not be driving climate change, but are impacted by a few that are, are taking place. So looking at the ocean within the One Ocean Hub, we have um, interconnected projects or components or aspects of the hub uh, that we look at. And uh, these then are very uh, clearly put together. Uh, these, let me just talk about these each research programs. The first one is looking at ocean governance in particular. So how do we govern the oceans collectively from a global perspective down to a local context? and how we can look at law and how law can drive ocean governance moving forward and how can we foster it to be more inclusive and transparent, particularly as we are growing the blue economy and we use the concepts of the blue economy as being sustainable or inherently sustainable, which sometimes when we talk about concepts and how we understand them, it is not as such. Then we have the emotional connection, and this is how different people view, value, and are connected to the ocean space. What is important to people and drivers, and sometimes this is beyond the concept of economy or even sustainability. The other is looking particularly at a sector in terms of fishery science and management. Uh, it's a big issue at the moment looking at illegal fishing, uh, overfishing, unsustainable use of fishing and practices globally and worldwide. And it's working with international organizations like the um, FAO or with the United Nations Environment Programme to tackle the issues around fishing and fisheries management, but also to bring in local voices and indigenous peoples into the conversation, which are often left from the table. The fourth um, component or aspect is offshore marine biodiversity. This is an area where we know very little and the value of, of the biodiversity in mitigating climate change, um, our carbon, carbon sequestration, carbon storage within the ocean. It also looks at the uh, need for biodiversity in connection to biocultural diversity the cultural connection to biodiversity within the open ocean. And it is also modeling these different connections and the deep sea ecosystems in valuing and how we better can include this connection with local contexts in our economic zones, as well as from a global perspective, so that we preserve ecosystem functioning, which is really important for moving forward in climate mitigation and adaptation strategies. The last aspect, which I think is very important for today's discussion, is looking at blue societies. And this is focused on the economies, looking at alternative economies, um, what is meant by blue economy and how we can change these uh, to be more inclusive. 
and also to look at the injustices that occur due to what we think are blue societies and blue economies, but are actually the pillaging of resources that local livelihoods are then impacted upon. So that's the fifth component. These are all through a human rights lens, underpinning how we can best be more inclusive for ocean governance going forward uh, for the whole ocean, not just for certain parts of the ocean that are of interest to certain countries because of the resources that might be found there. Bernie, that's a that's a huge brief that you're sitting on there, but but absolutely fascinating. Just hearing you describe that, the way all of those programs interconnect, and and really reinforcing, I suppose, that point that sustainability is not something that sits in a silo. It crosses across nations and states and 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 all the parts of the planet. And the you know obviously the ocean interconnects all of us. So so really, what 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 Bernie was saying encapsulates some of the drivers behind those very ambitious United Nations goals, the Sustainable Development Goals, which were set back in 2015, which were all about bringing together different parts of the world to work on on the 17 goals, but specifically through that lens of climate change. So, so Tracy, this obviously feeds into a lot of the work that you do at at the Centre for Sustainable Development, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and the One Ocean Hub is an absolutely perfect example of how we need to work together um, across not just um, different countries, but across different disciplines, across different sectors, um, to try and drive some of these really um, challenging, what we call our wicked problems, complex problems that are embedded within the kind of sustainable development goals. I think Chris spoke earlier about, you know, sustainable development is really looking to the future and and making sure that the the planet is habitable and that we can live within our needs for future generations. And another key of the sustainable development goals is really focused on the, the principle of leaving no one behind. And often when we look at some of the developments that we do, we, we tend to, to move forward those in kind of middle income and high income areas. And we increase that inequality that we already have between low income people, whether that's within a society like Glasgow or Scotland or whether that's globally um, looking at a much wider society as well. And, and what's really exciting about I think the One Ocean Hub and is a great example is that opportunity to hear the voices of you know indigenous people of local people people who have been really impacted by historical inequalities or disparities that can now we can look at how we can adjust for those in the future i think one of the key things that so we've had to deal with over the last 18 months has really taught us more than ever that we have to work together as a global community to to stave off these problems covid-19 is not a problem just for scotland or just for south africa it's a problem globally and and i think we've seen evidence of really big successes in that. And we've seen evidence of real failures in working together um, in an internationally collaborative way. Vaccine inequalities are the perfect example at the moment. We sit in Scotland with a huge percentage of people double vaccinated. And we look at countries like Malawi, where I used to live, where less than 2% of the population is is double vaccinated at the moment. So um, yeah, we have huge challenges looking forward, but we have examples of how we can address those. Tracy, just picking up on a couple of the points you just said there, is there a slight misconception, do you think, with sustainable development, that it's all future focused? And actually, a lot of the work or a lot of the concepts and goals that are within the sustainable development area are actually about addressing both current problems and future problems. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. These are problems we should have dealt with decades ago. And, and we can't, we're, we're in this decade of action now, um, and we can't afford to, to even meet the targets that we have. Hugely ambitious, 169 targets. Like it's, it's a massive undertaking for any country to achieve that. But in order to do that, we have to be tackling these things now. And what we've seen with things like COVID-19 is where we are we're progressing in some of these targets, we are now regressing again. And the, and the numbers are telling us that not again, you know, not just in, in low income countries. I think one of the dangers with when we talk about sustainable development is people translate that in their minds to international development. And they think then that we're only talking about Africa or Southeast Asia or, or Latin America. And, and it's all about um, just developing or low and middle income countries. And it's not. It's about our doorstep as well. It's about a global effort. And, and I think as Bernie was talking about, it's not just about the environment either. It's about how the society fits within that environment or biosphere. And then how the economy sits within that as well, because they all have to interact within these needs. I think a perfect example that people can refer to that is Kate Raworth's donut model. It's it's such a great visual. Unfortunately, podcast, you can't use visuals, but it's a great visual for people to look up, um, which really shows where we are in terms of our planetary boundaries, which ones we're exceeding, which ones we might be okay with. Um, but within that as well, it doesn't focus on GDP. Everything doesn't center around GDP. And, and, and there it focuses on the social needs of the population. So whether that's justice, whether that's food, whether it's education, um, you know, there's not one single country in the world at the moment that meets all of the social needs of its population within that nice green zone and within the planetary boundaries. So we all have a long way to go and we can only go there by by going there together. I wonder, Tracy, following up my intro where I gave some attempt at describing what I what I think sustainable development is, whether you have a, a better or more, I don't know, a more refined um, definition of what you think sustainable development is. And, and, and I may be just for everyone's benefit, could you perhaps clarify what the sustainable development goals are? And you mentioned just a minute ago about a series of targets. 160 or so targets and how they relate to the sustainable development goals. So there's three questions in one for you there. Sure, sure. You did a great job at explaining it, Chris. Don't worry. Um, but I guess how I always describe it um, to students or, or to people I'm talking to um, is I usually use a, a nice wedding cake depiction that was, was developed um, in Stockholm, which um, at the bottom, if you imagine the bottom layer of the cake with the foundation is the biosphere or the environment, and, and that's what we need to protect. Everything needs to, to be embedded within that. You know, the environment will be fine without the human race if we left it alone. So, so the environment needs to be there as the foundation. And then the society, um, the next layer of the cake, society needs to sit with on that, within that foundation. And as you said at the beginning, we need to live within the boundaries of, of that environment. We need to meet our needs but those needs need to be met within, within those boundaries. And then of course, society functions around an economy. So that equally sits, sits within the economy as well. And so then we, you know, we have that nice depiction with these kind of three pillars, and then we throw in this idea of 17 goals, and that can become really confusing to people. How do those 
things translate to each other. And ultimately, those different goals can fit into those different tiers of the cake um, as well. But what's really important is if, if people have already seen the 17 goals, they look beautiful. They're a lovely depiction. It's a great example of a fab infographic. But what it doesn't depict is how interlinked all of those different goals are. You, you know, and again, you know, you can't, for example, um, in sub-Saharan Africa, expect to progress good health and well-being um, or SDG three if you don't provide clean water and sanitation um, in SDG six. Um, you can't expect to progress economic growth if you don't progress education. All of these things are inherently interlinked as well. So under that 17, to answer your last question, under those 17 goals, there's also these 169 very specific targets for those each goals as well that we try to measure by. And again, it's another challenge for, for measuring our progress because we need data um, to know how we're doing against those. And, and that's something that can be very challenging to collect and analyse. Chrissy, I was struck when you were talking and also something Chris said about the fact that the, the, this isn't just about the international sphere, um, although we tend to, to always think that, don't we? I mean, you know, the first two goals about ending poverty and ending um, hunger. And when we have poverty on our streets and we have hunger on our streets right here, you know, in, in wherever we happen to be sitting in the UK, in your case, up in, in, in Scotland, in my case, down in windy Suffolk. I mean, so that they're, they're goals that are directly related to our lives, including goals around equality and the climate, specifically the goal around the climate. So, so they are a fantastic framework, albeit that they're a set of tiles rather than a patch of circle, which would be nicer. And they kind of link back into what Bernie was saying too about how everything is interconnected. And I was really struck by what you were saying, Bernie, when you're talking about the work of the, the hub, about this idea of a kind of emotional programme and people's emotional relationship with the oceans, because that is incredibly important, isn't it, to anybody who has a kind of in a coastal community or, or, or relies on the ocean for any part of their living or, or you know, is at the mercy of the ocean um, as the climate changes. So, so I think that's a really strong strand of some of this sustainable conversation we've been having generally, isn't it, Chris? It's just not something you put in a box and in a silo. I think that's that's right. It, it, it's it's been fascinating to see what those common storylines and themes have come out from from us doing the, these episodes. And absolutely right, the interconnectedness between both the environment uh, and ourselves, and that to achieve a lot of the goals that we've set ourselves requires or relies on, I suppose, everyone working together. And I mean, there's there's a question there. I suppose really, then, where does the responsibility lie? Are these challenges too great for any one group, any one country? I think it comes back to Tracy's point here, which is it requires a global effort. So maybe the question that sort of follows that, and maybe I'll ask this of Tracy, is looking forward then to COP26, which of course is going to happen here in Glasgow in a few months' time, is how are we going to continue and progress uh, along uh, achieving these sustainable development goals when we require, of course, that global effort. Personally, I can ask you in a slightly different way. What do you hope for in COP26? I think as we talk a lot amongst um, colleagues at Strathclyde and outside, I think our fear for COP26 is that it's another talking shop. And I think that we've had enough talking shops. We've made targets. We haven't met them. We make new targets and we don't meet them again. And the time for kind of awareness 
is over and done with. What we need to drive from COP26 is activism. And I think activism is a word that scares people. They imagine, you know, people stamping down the streets and smashing windows and all these kind of things. And that's not, we have positive activism and we need to drive that positive activism. I think we also need to drive another type of positivity. There's, there's, we listen to the news and it's terrifying. We watch wildfires, we watch all of these uh, floods and, and earthquakes and we think, well, I'm just a little person sitting just outside Glasgow. What can I possibly do about that? Because I think at the moment we feel that the burden lies on us as individuals and we have to, I think, help. And this is where governments and leaders need to help drive. What does a positive, successful future look like? And then how do I contribute towards that? Because at the moment, it's just fear. You can't use your gas. You can't, you know, you can't drive your car. You can't do all these things that I enjoy doing day to day because no one's shown the public what a future could look like that looks different. And if I think if we can show people what a different future can look like, then we can, you know, be on a much better path to achieving that. And then, of course, we need all of the frameworks underneath that, the subsidies, the support. I mean, nothing is more devastating to someone like me, whose research is primarily in low-middle income countries, to watch the UK government cutting ODA funding this year. It just It's a huge step backwards, and I'm sure Bernie will agree with that as well. But, you know, we, we have an opportunity here, a really important window to paint a positive picture of the future and help people see how we can be guided towards that and support that. You're listening to Innovate Strathclyde, the University of Strathclyde's podcast on innovation and technology. Annie, did you want to come in? It's, it's, I think it's just building on your question, um, Chris, and, and the conversation that's taken place um, and, um, and commenting on what Tracy has just said. But I think it's changing the, the, the narrative. So we talk about the whole eco-optimism and hashtag for the environment movements that are taking place around. And it's allowing people with different voices and different ways of expressing themselves to tell the stories in a different way, both from the negative in what they're experiencing and, and being able to converse. We have so many languages and so many ways of expressing ourselves with different needs and what I would hope that COP would allow is that those stories, which usually sit on the fringe of COP, they're the extra bits, the little podcasts and the stories and the theatre and the art exhibits and, you know, researchers sitting on the outside looking like activists, you know, with our placards and say, use our science um, and, you know, listen to the Indigenous peoples or, you know, the local, just step outside and see what's the climate devastation is taking place. So I think from that perspective, one would hope is how can we get those stories to be listened to by the decision makers? And then how do we empower the groundswell from the bottom to become activists? Because in many cases, I think that locally, and I'll take um, South Africa as an example, if we look at our small scale fishers, they are very concerned about climate change and the impact it's going to have on their livelihoods and their cultural connection. So the, just the activities and rituals that are going to be impacted by sea level rise, the top club, the political club, they, they climb on their airplanes, add some more carbon to the system, 
go back into the different countries and then go back to business as usual um, and, and doing their, and, and there is no, sometimes there has to be a punitive measure and sometimes there have to be incentives. And we need to identify what the incentives are at the different levels. But to be included in the club, the onus is often put on the person in the street to be incentivized and the person in the street to change their behavior because it's all their fault, you know, or that's how it's communicated. And I think, you know, we need to change those stories and narratives and listen to the research and listen to the people and allow them in the room to sit at the same table, not just with the politician. So can I just ask then, you, you piqued my interest there a little bit when you talk, when you brought in the theme of activism and the connection to research. And you gave us a really lovely description of what the, all the different programs in the One Ocean Hub earlier on. Is that activism, and I can perhaps broaden that to you know, people in general, in perhaps in particular young voices, which is that's another one of the themes that's running through our podcast series. Are you actively trying to bring that voice into the work and the research that you're doing within the One Ocean Hub? And, and if so, could you give us a, an example of that? Yes, definitely. So, we would say we're activist scholars, so researchers that are activists at the same time. And it's not an easy mantle to carry for many researchers because it's how we trained. We're not trained to be activists and raise our voices against the system or against the process. So one of the examples is through our coastal justice network, where we have a network of small-scale fishers connected across the South African coastline. Uh, so this is one of the case studies within or case study partner countries within the One Ocean Hub. And through the Coastal Justice Network, we have created opportunities, platforms and fora for them to raise their voices and to sit in, in some key meetings and ask questions through WhatsApp, through one of the researchers sitting in there as a mole. <laughs> at the meantime, we're busy chatting on WhatsApp sending pictures of all the presentation slides and saying, well, this is what they said you said. Did you say this? And they would come back and say, no, we didn't. And then we raise our hands and say, no, actually, according to so-and-so on the desk, you know, this is what's happening is one small example. But what it has also highlighted is actually from a small scale, when we were having conversations with FAO, looking at the voluntary guidelines for small-scale fishers and also looking with UNEP at the concept of defenders, human rights defenders, it came through that these coastal fishers are ocean defenders, not only defending human rights, their rights to livelihood and access, but also defending the rights of the ocean. So we were able to share through the Coastal Justice Network and with FAO and UNEP pictures of them striking, like doing a school strike against climate change, uh, against mining, against extractive uh, practices that they are against and haven't been able to do. It takes it a little bit further that, um, as we say, it takes a village to uh, address the problem. So the village includes the local inhabitants within the village, not just the chief or the, or the constituency of it or the researchers in it. We need to do this in a transdisciplinary way. And transdisciplinary means that we find new methods and approaches of collecting data and sharing data. It also means that we understand, accept and acknowledge different knowledge. 
systems, different ways of viewing. And, and if we can bring that into the conversation and find novel ways, and one way we have found is through arts-based media, is engaging through art that's produced by the fishers or by the community and putting them in a room with the managers, with the officials, with the people who make the laws and the policies and implement them, hopefully, and, and having the conversation around an art piece or a poem to then bring the structure together. And it feels that they have a voice. And then we together can find mechanisms to change policy um, going forward. That's not only informed by science, but a question. It's a really fascinating point there, in particular, that the bringing in the art and science to, together. And that sort of relates back a little bit, perhaps, to one of Tracy's points earlier, which was we perhaps don't have a picture of, of what our future is. Uh, so one of the challenges of sustainable development is we need to have a future that we can relate to and understand perhaps where, where, where we're going. Tracy, do you, do you see a, a mechanism, perhaps it's art, maybe it's that, something else, but what, perhaps what mechanisms do you see that we can start to um, paint this picture of what a, a more sustainable future looks like? I think, I think the mechanisms are different depending on where you are. So, you know, I think like Bernie, having worked a lot in, in sub-Saharan Africa, arts and drama um, and these kind of things work incredibly well there. Um, you know, somewhere else it might be another um, avenue or a different type of pipeline that helps people to engage. And, and I 100% agree with Bernie on the, the need for this transdisciplinary approach. We've had... We've done research in Malawi, for example, where we've been looking to try and improve water and sanitation access, particularly around hand washing, even pre-COVID. Um, it was particularly happy to see it getting more bandwidth during COVID. You know, one of the best and most effective ways we improved hand washing in mothers of children under the age of two was to ask them to visualize what the future for that child looked like. And the future for that child looked like them graduating from high school or, you know, making it to secondary school, graduating from secondary school, maybe even going to university. So by depicting that child with some sort of, you know, mortarboard and graduation and that this is what you're aspiring to and putting maybe cues for action around hand washing facilities that look like that, you could then find that a mother washes her hands much more frequently that the diarrhea of that child goes down in that household. And that's not your traditional intervention. Traditionally, you tell mothers off, you tell them you must wash your hands or your child will have diarrhea and your child will die. And then you will be sad. Um, you know, by, you know, we need to switch the narrative exactly as Bernie said, we need to think more innovatively about how we put these messages across. Um, and we, we need to do that hand in hand with the community because community as have, an idea about where they want to go. Um, just nobody asks them. No one asks them. If we go down to the east end of Glasgow and ask what where what they would like their future to look like, they will tell you. And, and you know, we can then aspire to try and engage with that and look at how we can meet that together. Chris, I'm really struck by, by what Tracy's just said because it it, it, it um, echoes the conversation we had on a previous podcast, isn't it, when we were talking about lived experience and the importance of lived experience in shaping policy. And I think both Tracy and Bernie, that's just what you've been saying, isn't it? It's, we need to listen to the people who are there 
in that in the in the space in the country on you know on the water's edge before we make those decisions not just assume we know what is right for them i think that's right and i think i know we're past drawing on themes both from uh, our discussion today and and previous discussions but it, one of the ones that struck me on on a previous episode was the difference between adaptation and resilience and the adaptation is something that Perhaps people can't necessarily relate to, but the idea of being more resilient to something is more tangible. And I think as with sustainable development, those misconceptions of, I think as Tracy said earlier, that, that it's about international development only, when of course it, it, it's not. These are top-down type of statements and approaches, but actually it's the ground up, people-oriented, community-oriented, place-based actions and decisions that's where the change is really going to come. And it's fascinating to see this sort of narrative um, coming out repeatedly, I think, throughout the, our conversations. I wonder, Bernie, if I could ask you just a little bit more about, you were talking about the programmes and, and how you find the thread between them, because they are quite distinct in some of the things that you've been saying. And although I know, you know, you talked about emotional and international and, and biodiversity and biocultural diversity, how do you weave it together? Where does the thread sit? Because you are a primarily a research institute, so presumably you're having to try and do some of that and encapsulate some of that in the reporting that you do. So how does that work in practice? Well, I think it's, let's take Tracy's wedding cake um, a little bit and, and imagine the taste experience of that wedding cake as well. So if we talk about the bottom layer and it's chocolate, what would the middle layer be and the top layer be that would complement chocolate? So it's interconnected. You don't just eat the bottom layer or the middle layer or the top layer. They actually get eaten together. So it's a system, and the system in this case is called the wedding cake. So if we look at the global ocean, it's a system of interconnected parts that seems very complicated. For humans to identify how to work within the system and within sustainable development theory, we move it on towards looking at social ecological systems, remembering that politics and economics is a social construct. It's something we as people made up through evolution and over time um, to control and manage the world and the, the value positions we all have. As we spread across the globe and as the globe has evolved, we've also changed some of those value positions, but we're still interconnected from a central point of being human in some way, and we have constructed laws. So that's where the interconnection comes in. If we look at the social construct and what are the predominant laws, so if we take the UN law of the sea in class, which is done from a global perspective with a global value position through a global lens and to benefit in many instances at a global open seas level. But if we look at the implementation at a more regional level, we notice that we are not necessarily managing the commons for a benefit for all. So there's the interconnectivity between it. So if we take that down, becomes in looking at it from a human rights lens and from a human rights perspective, does the UN law of the sea actually inform UN, uh, the human rights perspective in terms of local access to decent um, health, wages, work, benefits, livelihoods, a safe space, a safe environment, access to the environment of these interconnected commons? 
So in many cases, we then look at it from in a small sector, we do marine spatial planning, we draw a little border, this is our little space, but we forget that it's an ebb and flow of things moving in and out within that space with my neighbor influencing it in some way, my end neighbor benefiting from what I'm doing and managing or being excluded or impacted on, even into a point of a human rights violation that's taking place in, in that system. So the connection of that socio-ecological system is what we are looking at, is where is the governance connection? How do people engage with, within the system itself? And how do people report on that system. So as a scientist, I would draw a model and a framework and I'd draw little blocks and I would say my little phytoplankton, which are little plants that, you know, producing their chlorophyll, it does this and it's eaten by such and then someone comes and catches the eaten by such and then this one will explode over here and this little hocha, as we would say it in South Africa, would do this and do that. And that's what would happen within the system. As a researcher within a group, I would then say, okay, well, if I change this, so I've caught less of that fish that eats my little, you know, phytoplankton um, going forward, then I could balance my system by doing that. So then I make a fisheries management decision on the fish. But what we often forget to do then is looking at what are the implications of making that decision there are downstream, upstream, and unknown variables that could be impacted upon. So if biologically, it could have an impact in changing the structure. So where I might have had four different types of little plants that I needed to make sure the system worked, it means now I only have one because that fish dominantly, predominantly eats others. And I've now created a space where there's more of those fish. Socially, it could have different impacts. In other words, from an industry perspective, they are economically no longer viable. People could lose their jobs. Uh, it could mean that there should have been um, diversification. So if we look at it through that interconnected lens of a socio-ecological system and what operates in those two systems, um, that's how we see the interconnectivity between those five predominant themes. Um, so with the blue economy, it's more than just the fishes, but we know in terms of open sea global, the, the, the highly impacting, and we're moving now to oil and gas, which is just as scary considering we're talking about climate change, but the, the, the race for oil and gas exploration in our open seas is going to have a similar impact as what the fisheries are having at this point in time in breaking down both the ecological but also the social system because with unregulated fishing comes human trafficking, slave, modern day slavery um, and all of those other aspects. So you have to look at them in this interconnected way. We can't just look at fish stocks need to be this or the plant stock needs to be that or on land we need to have clean water. We need to understand the interconnectivity and the decisions we make beyond it. First of all, I would like to bottle up Bernie and let her, everyone in the world, hear her speak about her work. And, and just to, it's such a fabulous explanation of how these things are also interconnected in such a easy way for anyone to be able to visualize it. And I, but when I was listening to Bernie, it raised another thing that I think is so important and a, and a huge 
barrier to us moving forward, and that's language. And I don't mean like different languages that we all speak, but language barriers between disciplines as well. Because Bernie started giving us her scientific, you know, explanation and then moved on to being like a non-academic audience. I think it's a failing of academics that we are not always very good at putting our work into non-academic. You're you're absolutely right, Tracy. But hopefully we have bottled a little bit of Bernie through the podcast. So uh, I think that was partly our intention. And I think we've kind of come full circle, haven't we? Which is which is lovely to to just reinforcing that interconnected. Uh, That's right. And these are um, to to use um, uh, Tracy's language earlier. These are grand challenges or wicked problems. Uh, Yeah, these are more than any one of us uh, can do by, by uh, I know as, a, as an academic, um, uh, I've often not probably communicated my my own research in a way that it is accessible and uh, understandable perhaps yeah, to, to everyone. So I think there's, a, there's an awful lot of learnings and space for, for us all there. It's been a, a, a brilliant conversation. I feel like, again, we've, we've just touched the surface of, of some of these points. There's so many things that uh, um, I think probably we wanted to discuss today that we haven't got to, but it's been brilliant. And uh, thank you to both of our guests. Again, thank you to Tracy Morse and uh, to Bernadette Snow. Um, thank you to, to you both. And of course, to my co-host, um, Amanda. Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And it was a great pleasure. And yes, I agree with you, Chris. There's so much more to touch on. Look forward to future podcasts. Um, we'll be back with our next um, episode. Um, if you've enjoyed listening to this one, to our episode of Innovate Strathclyde, um, you can um, subscribe on Spotify, on iTunes, or wherever your favourite podcast um, app is, uh, and then you'll never miss uh, the next one of our episodes. Or you can look at us and you can find us on the um, uh, University of Strathclyde website. Um, thanks so much for listening. Thanks again to our guests and goodbye and see you next time. Yeah, thanks both of you. Goodbye.